the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producer, Clark Hilton engineer. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Dave Bauer. He's the author of The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Dr. Bauer um, holds a Ph.D. from Union Theological Seminary in Virginia, is the Ralph Waldo Beeson Professor of Inductive Biblical Studies and Dean of the School of Biblical Interpretation at Asbury Theological Seminary. His numerous books include Inductive Bible Study, A Comprehensive Guide to the Practice of Hermeneutics and Essential Bible Study Tools for Ministry. He'll join us later this hour to talk about his latest book, The Gospel of the Son of God, An Introduction to Matthew. Again, the book published by InterVarsity Press. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines from earlier in the day up to the present, President Trump uh, made a statement today after Iran fired as many as 15 ballistic missiles into Iraq, targeting U.S. military and coalition forces in a major retaliation by the rogue regime after the U.S. airstrike that killed Iranian Quds Force General Qasem Soleimani last week. Ten missiles hit al-Assad Air Base, one missile hit a military base in Erbil, and four missiles failed to hit their targets altogether, according to a U.S. military spokesman for Central Command, responsible for American forces in the Middle East. The attacks unfolded in two waves early Wednesday, each about an hour apart, officials said. Initial assessments showed no U.S. casualties, a U.S. military official in Baghdad confirmed. The president tweeted a response late Tuesday evening, all is well, missiles launched from Iran at two military bases located in Iraq. Assessment of casualties and damages taking place now. So far, so good. We have the most powerful and well-equipped military anywhere in the world by far. I will be making a statement tomorrow morning, which, as mentioned, he did earlier today. Meanwhile, Senator Lindsey Graham has detailed a conversation he had with President Trump in response to Tuesday's missile attack by Iran, which targeted U.S. military and coalition forces in Iraq. Let me say tonight, if you are watching television in Iran, Graham, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said on Sean Hannity's program, I just got off the phone with the president. Your fate is in your own hands in terms of the regime's economic viability. This was an act of war, Graham continued. By any reasonable definition, the missiles were launched from Iran. The president has all the authority he needs under Article 2 to respond. Well, a Ukrainian airplane carrying 176 people, including passengers and crew, crashed Wednesday morning shortly after takeoff near the airport in Tehran, killing all on board. According to Ukrainian President Zelensky's office, Iranian state-run IRNA news agency reported the plane had taken off from the uh, Khomeini International Airport. The flight was bound for the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. The crash came hours after Iran's ballistic missile attack on Iraqi bases housing U.S. soldiers. But both Ukrainian and Iranian officials say they suspect a mechanical issue brought down that Boeing 737-800 aircraft. More details on that forthcoming. 
This day in history, 1918, President Woodrow Wilson outlines his 14 points for lasting peace after World War I. Would that those 14 points had been sufficient. And on this day in 1975, Democrat Ella Grasso is sworn in as Connecticut's first female governor. On this day in 1998, Ramzi Yosef, the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, is sentenced in New York to life in prison without the possibility of parole. On this day in 2008, Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton wins the New Hampshire Democratic primary, defeating Senator Barack Obama the fuel and fueling rather new life in her bid for the White House. Senator John McCain defeats his Republican rivals to move back into contention for the GOP nomination. And the rest, as they say, is history. On this day in 2011, U.S. Representative Gabrielle Giffords, a Democrat from Arizona, is shot and critically wounded when a gunman opens fire as she meets with constituents in Tucson. Six people are killed, 12 others also injured. It took her many years to recover, not fully from her injuries. And finally, on this day in 2014, Bridgegate. Emails and text messages obtained by the Associated Press and other news organizations suggest that one of New uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's top aides engineered traffic jams in Fort Lee in September of 2013 to punish its mayor for not endorsing Christie for re-election. Christie responds by saying he'd been misled by the aide and he denies involvement in the apparent act of political payback. May have cost him the nomination he sought to represent Republicans in that next primary. Well, Pentagon officials believe that the more than a dozen uh, missiles launched at two bases in Iraq housing U.S. forces Tuesday night were designed to kill Americans, but the Iranian efforts were thwarted by the military's early warning systems. Defense Secretary Mark Esper and General Mark Miley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told reporters today, I believe based on what I saw and what I know is that they were intended to cause structural damage, destroy vehicles and equipment and aircraft, and to kill personnel. U.S. military officials were warned about Iran's pending ballistic missile strike when the air defense system went active, he said. He added that a little bit of early warning and normal defensive procedures at Al-Assad Air Base prevented American troops from being killed in the missile strike. In my estimation, he went on to say, from what I know, I think it uh, has more to do with the defensive techniques that our forces used as opposed to intent, adding that U.S. forces took sufficient defensive measures. Well, speaking to reporters after uh, returning from a briefing with Congress, Esper said that the 16 short-range ballistic missiles, originally estimated to be 15, were fired from three locations inside Iran during the attack early Wednesday, local time, and were intended to avenge the death of the Iranian Quds Force General Soleimani, who was killed in a U.S.-led drone strike at Baghdad International Airport last week. Uh, Miley said that between 1,000 and 2,000 pounds uh, warheads were sitting on top of the Iranian missile fired into Iraq. The defense secretary also said he believes the U.S. has reestablished deterrence from another Iranian attack, but added that he expects to be uh, challenged by Shiite proxy militias in the region. Some of the headlines from events that unfolded uh, last night. Ten missiles at the time, thought to be only ten, hit Al-Assad Air Base. One missile hit a military base in Erbil. Four missiles failed to hit their uh, targets, according to the U.S. military. Later, President Trump tweeted, all is well. One story notes the attack involved Iran directly launching weapons from inside Iran, explicitly targeting U.S. troops. Though Iran has been uh, no stranger to attacking U.S. targets, typically it has done so through proxy groups such as Kataib Hezbollah. This has allowed Iran to claim a layer of distance from the actual attacks. No 
Noah Rothman, again commenting, says this is uh, retaliatory, asymmetric, and destabilizing. It is a response to Soleimani, but it's also not new. As of late December, there have been 11 Iran-linked rocket attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq, including Green Zone, over two months producing American casualties. From Iran Foreign Minister Zaved Zarif, Iran took and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense under Article 51 of U.N. Charter, targeting base from which cowardly armed attack against our citizens and senior officials were launched. We do not seek escalation or war, but will defend ourselves against any aggression. Michael Medved commenting said the regime in Iran is despicable and fanatical, of course, but they do control their own decision making. How could they possibly benefit from choosing to plunge headlong into a major war against the United States, a conflict that could inflict only agony on their people? And finally, Larry Elder. No, Afghanistan is not America's longest war. We've been at war against Iran for 40 years. It took President Trump to notice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next segment, we'll talk with Dr. Dave Bauer, author of The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. And of course, that's The Gospel of Matthew. Coming up in our next segment. Well, less than 24 hours after Iran fired 15 missiles at U.S. military facilities in Iraq, President Trump signaled a strong desire to de-escalate by announcing new sanctions instead of a military response. He also urged allies to put more pressure on Iran's Islamist dictatorship. As long as I am president of the United States, he says, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Uh, He said to begin his formal remarks Wednesday in the uh, grand foyer of the White House. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties, he went on to say. All of our soldiers are safe and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. Well, no military retaliation doesn't mean no retaliation. As the president said, more U.S. sanctions are coming without specifying these uh, powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior, he said. Well, Trump appealed directly to the people of Iran, saying they could have a great future, one that you deserve, one of prosperity at home and in harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace with all who seek it. Well, the president spoke for fewer than 10 minutes, flanked by, among others, Vice President Mike Pence, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The 15 ballistic missiles fired from Iran mostly struck Al-Assad Air Base in western Anbar province, but also a base in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan to the north. Members of Congress were set to get a classified briefing from the administration uh, later in the day, which took place uh, this afternoon, the Iran attack, which occurred early Wednesday local time, came days after the president ordered a drone strike that killed uh, General uh, Qasim Soleimani in Iraq early Friday, prompting the Iranian government to threaten retaliation. U.S. officials considered Soleimani a terrorist directly responsible for the deaths of more than 600 Americans. The president blamed his continuing activities on the Obama administration-led multilateral Uh, Iran nuclear agreement of 2015, which dropped sanctions and unleashed about uh, $150 billion to the Islamist regime in return for its agreement to suspend its nuclear weapons program. 
President Trump said the money released by the U.S. to Iran was used to pay for attacks on American forces, including this one. He pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in 2017, but European allies remain in that agreement. For far too long, all the way back to 1979 to be exact, nations have tolerated Iran's destructive and destabilizing behavior in the Middle East and beyond. President Trump said those days are over. The president specifically called on the United Kingdom, France, Germany, China and Russia to exit the remnants of the Iran deal. He also called for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to step up. NATO should become much more involved in Middle East process, the president went on to say. President Trump took direct aim at former President Obama on Wednesday, blaming the last administration for giving Iran money that he claimed was then used by Tehran to pay for missiles that were aimed at U.S. troops in Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available by the last administration, he said from the White House, referring to the settlement money the U.S. paid to Iran in 2016. This was money that was held by the United States that had originally been Iran's money. Uh, at the time of the uh, hostage crisis. Well, the president addressed the nation uh, the morning after the regime launched more than a dozen missiles, making that and other statements. Meanwhile, a Ukrainian airplane carrying 176 passengers and crew crashed shortly after taking off from Tehran's airport Wednesday morning, killing all on board and turning farmland on the outskirts of the capital into fields of flaming debris. The Ukraine International Airlines flight, bound for the country's capital of Kiev, plunged from the sky just minutes after departing the uh, Imam Khomeini, uh, Khomeini International Airport, according to Iran's state-run uh, IRNA news agency. The crash comes hours after Iran launched a barrage of ballistic missiles on Iraqi bases housing American and coalition soldiers. An Iranian official said they suspect a mechanical issue brought down the Boeing 737-800 aircraft. Ukrainian officials initially agreed, but later backed away and declined to offer a cause while the investigation is ongoing. I heard a massive explosion and all the houses started to shake. There was fire everywhere, said an Iranian who lives near the crash site, speaking to the Associated Press. Uh, Kasimi, uh, the uh, resident, said he had been watching news broadcasts about the Iranian missiles attack in revenge for the killing of the Revolutionary Guard general when he heard the plane hit the ground outside his home. At first, I thought the Americans have hit here with missiles and went into the basement as a shelter. After a while, I went out and saw a plane had crashed over there. Body parts were lying around everywhere. All 167 passengers and nine crew members from different nations on board the plane perished, both Iranian and Ukrainian officials said. The nationalities of those dead, according to Ukraine Foreign Minister uh, Pristenko, uh, were as follows. 82 Iranians, 63 Canadians and 11 Ukrainians, nine of which were crew members, 10 Swedes, 4 Afghan, 3 German and 3 British. Again, the investigation is ongoing. There are potential terrorist sleeper cell operations in the United States and their credible threat in the wake of Tuesday's Iranian missile strike. So says former CIA officer Brian Dean Wright, appearing on Fox and Friends with hosts Steve Ducey, Ainsley Earhart and Brian Kilmeade on Wednesday. Wright said that there are unquestionably sleeper cells operated and directed by the Iranian regime in the United States. After the rogue regime fired more than a dozen rockets at two Iraqi military bases hosting U.S. troops, leaders there indicated that there might not be more immediate retaliation by either side. All is well, the president said. Just moments before, Iranian Foreign Minister Javid Zarif, he tweeted that Tehran had taken and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense. 
However, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini said that their military actions were insufficient and no more than a slap in the face of the United States. State television reported that Iran had 100 other targets in the region in its sights if Washington took any further action. The CIA and the FBI have long had a pulse on this threat, so we know that the risk is here, said the CIA agent. The other deep concern is that we have to be right 100 percent of the time to mitigate these individuals and to find this threat. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that every time. Wright said that if Iran ever does hit back inside the United States, it would be tantamount to a new 9-11. That said, he believes it's important for Americans to understand that the president didn't just deter Iranian acts of terror by killing the Iranian Qud Force uh, leader. He knocked them out. So what's important now is, he went on to say, if the Iranians want to strike back, they know we will take a disproportionate attack against them. Um, this is powerful. It's important, he went on to say, and the American people should sleep much, much easier knowing that we have somebody in the White House who is willing to take that kind of step. Uh, again, quoting the former CIA officer, Brian Dean Wright, speaking earlier in the day. Well, on the political front, Julian Castro, the former Obama housing secretary and San Antonio mayor, has dropped out of the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. The only Latino in the field, Castro established himself as one of the more progressive members of the primary race, but had been struggling to raise money and fight his way back onto the debate stage. It's with profound gratitude to all our supporters that I suspend my campaign for president today. He tweeted some time back. I am so proud of everything we've accomplished together. Uh, I'm going to uh, keep fighting for an America where everyone counts. I hope you'll join me in that fight. Well, in a video released by the campaign, he said they've shaped the conversation on so many important issues in this race, stood up for the most vulnerable people, and given a voice to those who are often forgotten. Castro started flirting with a White House run in early 2018 with trips to early voting states and was the first to set up his presidential exploratory committee in December of that year. But Castro had stalled for most of his campaign, around 1% in the polls, and entered October low on money. Castro, who's 45, was among the youngest in the, the running, but was previously eclipsed by another Texan in the race who dropped out this fall, former Representative Beto O'Rourke and another young former mayor, Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana. His campaign and supporters, meanwhile, grumbled that Castro didn't get due credit for taking out front positions. Uh, for instance, Castro sought to decriminalize border crossings, forcing the rest of the primary field to debate the controversial stance, but... Uh, Most of them ended up endorsing the idea, trying to show that he could go toe to toe with President Trump. Castro swung uh, for um, big moments on debate stages, but he faced a backlash in September after appearing to swipe at Joe Biden's age by accusing him of forgetting his position on a health care issue. Well, I'm fulfilling the legacy of Barack Obama and you're not, Castro said. Uh, shooting back at the time. Well, Castro, who was Obama's housing secretary in his second term, denied taking a personal dig at Biden as others in the field condemned the exchange. Although in a political contest, I suppose that should be expected. Castro frequently slammed the Democratic National Committee for their disqualifying criteria to make the primary debates. He failed to make the stage in the last two showdowns and was almost certain to be shut out of the January debate as well. In the autumn, he shuttered his uh, small staff from the early voting states of New New Hampshire and South Carolina in order to focus on Iowa and Nevada, as well as his home state of Texas. He took aim at both Iowa and New Hampshire, both overwhelmingly Caucasian states, for traditionally holding the first two contests in the presidential primary and caucuses nominating calendar. 
In his video announcing he was ending his bid, he emphasized that it's time for the Democratic Party to change the way we do our presidential nominating process. Well, they may change the way they do their nominating process, but it will not impact him as he has now stepped away from the running. Coming up, we're going to talk with Dr. Dave Bauer, author of The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as promised, we're going to talk about a new volume, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. My guest is uh, Dr. David Bauer. And in the book, uh, he uh, points out that from the beginning to the end, the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God. In this comprehensive introduction to Matthew, he presents a holistic, inductive approach with a literary, theological, and canonical uh, focus on the on the text. So he joins us to talk about this uh, volume. I should mention that Dr. Um, Bauer earned his Ph.D. from Union Theological Seminary, is the Ralph Waldo Beeson Professor of Inductive Biblical Studies and Dean of the School of Biblical Interpretation at Asbury Theological Seminary. His numerous books include Inductive Bible Study, A Comprehensive Guide to the Practice of Hermeneutics and Essential Bible Study Tools for Ministry. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bauer, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you write uh, early on in the uh, in the preface that this volume represents the fruit of nearly 40 years of research and teaching on the Gospel of Matthew. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work as a, uh, as a professor and a student of, of this book in particular. Well, interestingly enough, I have never had or taken a course on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I became interested in Matthew uh, during my uh, seminary uh, years uh, because of its uh, centrality to the biblical canon. Uh, it stands really at the center of the canon, and more than any other gospel, um, connects the teaching and life of Jesus and really the New Testament with the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, I, when I was looking, to, uh, looking forward to doing uh, doctoral studies, uh, I was wanting to focus upon the Gospel of Matthew, and I was fortunate enough to study under one of the great authorities in the world on the Gospel of Matthew, Jack Jean Kingsbury. Uh, It was a wonderful experience, and I have been teaching here at Asbury Theological Seminary now for 36 years. And so we have the benefit of of that study, that life of... of, um of study and uh, your focus on the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things you point out early on is that there are other volumes on the the Gospel of Matthew, but this differs in some significant ways. Can you describe for us the approach that you've taken uh, in your book, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew? Yes, I think it, I think it, it, it differs from most other introductions to Matthew in three ways, especially. Um, one has to do with the... Uh, with uh, the comprehensiveness of the approach, um, I recognize that uh, that really there are three things involved in the very character of Matthew's gospel, uh, that uh, it has a history, that is to say, it arose at a certain time, of course, in the past, was, it, was, was uh, addressed to uh, certain Christians in the past, obviously in the first century, um, and, uh, <clears throat> And of course, uh, references uh, the history of Jesus. So you have that historical aspect. But the Gospel of Matthew is essential, is essentially literary. Uh, that is to say, it is a book. Uh, and uh, to grasp its message, one must take its literary character seriously. Uh, the way in which the evangelist has 
has, has arranged his material, uh, the uh, selectivity of the evangelist, what he has chosen to leave out, what he has chosen to include, um, all these kinds of uh, features. And then, of course, it is theological because the primary focus of this book is really upon, upon God and Christ. Uh, that's, the purpose of it is really to communicate um, a theological message. And so the book is careful to attend to each of these three aspects and to relate them to one another uh, with a common goal of, 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 of grasping as best we can the message that the writer of Matthew wished wish to convey to his original readers, which has, of course, continuing significance uh, for us. The second way in which it's different is that, and this really re uh, relates in a way to what I just said, and that is it, uh, it, it uh, utilizes the in uh, an inductive approach, which really uh, is intentional in asking, okay, uh, given the nature of the Gospel of Matthew, what is the most appropriate, the most effective way to study it, to come to understand it. Uh, this is based on the principle of suitability, and that is the, the, the most effective way to, to do anything is to consider the nature of the task. The most effective way then to study the, math, the Gospel of Matthew is to consider the nature of Matthew's Gospel. And as I say, it's historical, it's literary, and it's theological. The third thing has to do really with the, with the, with the scope of the audience that I have in mind. Mm -hmm. um, its, its target is really, um, one might say, upper-class undergraduate students or seminary students or informed pastors, uh, but uh, my uh, hope is, and I think that it, it uh, really can function this way, is that we'll speak into scholarship. I've tried to, to, um, to chart some new paths in terms of Matthean scholarship, but also uh, I think that, um, that informed lay people uh, interested lay people can find real help in it too, because I've been I was tr I try to be careful in terms of how I wrote it. Uh, my conviction is that that is possible to communicate uh, uh, serious truth uh, to people who are uninitiated if you are careful in your communication, if you are clear, and if you're and if you're intentional in terms of not assuming. Um, uh, a great deal of knowledge on the part mm -hmm. of the reader, making sure that the reader is constantly informed in terms of the assumptions and the and is uh, and uh, the meaning of terms that that uh, is being employed. One of the things that you uh, say in the book is that along with Paul's epistle to the Romans, the Gospel of Matthew is the most significant Christian writing in existence. It stands at the center, as you mentioned a moment ago, of the New Testament canon functioning as foundation uh, documents that present the story and teaching of Jesus and thus form the the um, presupposition for the apost apostolic ministry. Now explain what you mean by that, because most of our listeners who have um, had uh, done a plain reading of the Gospel of Matthew may not uh, appreciate its significance in the canon of Scripture. Can you help us better understand um, why that's true? Well, uh, of course, in general, uh, the, all four of our Gospels uh, are foundation documents for the rest of the New Testament. Um, they present, uh, they, they present the, the life and the teachings of Jesus, which then, of course, is presupposed by the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament builds, builds upon that. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, that the rest of the New Testament uh, uh, writers were aware of our Gospels. In fact, in terms of historical sequence, all the 
all of the epistles of Paul were written before any of our gospels were produced, but they were aware and the uh, of, of the of the of basically the life and the teaching of Jesus, which now finds expression in our gospels. So uh, the rest of the New Testament is based, of course, upon the upon the the upon the uh, historical manifestation of Jesus Christ, his his life teachings. So that's that's how it functions foundationally for the rest of the New Testament. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, it is really it is really central to the canon of the of Scripture. Of course, canon of Scripture has two testaments: the Old Testament mm-hmm. and the New Testament. And it's not by accident that the Gospel of Matthew, uh, since Irenaeus at least, and really for the most part even before him, as far as we can tell, the the Gospel of Matthew has almost always been uh, the first of the the first book of the New Testament. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that, but one reason is because of its of of, of its close association with the Old Testament. No other gospel uh, does uh, as much to relate uh, 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 the life and the teaching of Jesus to the Old Testament. Two particulars will illustrate this. One is that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, uh, of which, of course, is a gene- genealogy uh, that uh, goes back to Abraham. Uh, through David to Jesus, who is called Christ. And then, of course, in Matthew's Gospel, you have the so-called fulfillment quotations. There are anywhere from 10 to 12 of them, depending how you count them. This was uh, done uh, in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, uh, those kinds of things. You have those, those statements throughout Matthew's Gospel, which provide a uh, scriptural framework, uh, let's say an Old Testament scriptural framework, for uh, Jesus in terms of the category of fulfillment. Uh, and incidentally, uh, readers often will note those, because they're quite obvious, those fulfillment quotations, as they're called, but actually they represent only, uh, they, they rep- represent only one-fifth of the scriptural quotations and allusions that we have throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. We're talking about the book, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. Dr. David Bauer is our guest. I do need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. By the way, the book is currently available and published by InterVarsity Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. We're talking about the Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. My guest is Dr. David Bauer. He provides a comprehensive introduction to this Gospel that's been so foundational to the uh, Christian Church. He argues that the nature of Matthew itself should provide us with the framework for its study, and he presents a holistic, inductive approach with a literary, theological, and uh, canonical um, uh, emphasis. Now, the volume falls into three main sections. You've made reference to them in our, our previous conversation, the orientation, interpretation, and reflection. Let's talk about how these three sections help us in our study of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Let's begin with the first um, section of the book, which is its orientation. Uh, yes, the orientation, of course, uh, is meant to uh, to. Uh, help uh, readers of Matthew's Gospel put it into into context, its context, and read it in terms of its context. So there are four there are four uh, discussions under orientation. The first is the form and genre of the Gospel. Um, uh, every uh, every act of communication, including any literary communication, uh, has genre. That is a, a, a certain form in which it is cast. 
and it's it's important, it's essential really to read anything in terms of its genre, keeping its genre in mind. We would not um, we, we would not read, for example, uh, uh, a a book a science fiction book in the same way that we would read a math textbook. They are two different genres. Uh, so it was very important to, I think, to begin by identifying exactly what is a gospel, what is the nature of a gospel, and uh, and how does an understanding of, of the genre uh, of the gospel help us to know uh, how to read it, the kinds of reading strategies that are appropriate, and and those kinds of reading strategies that, that would lead us astray in terms of grasping really the message uh, that the inspired writer has to uh, give to us. Uh, we talk also about the method that we adopt here, which, as we've already uh, mentioned, is mm-hmm. an inductive approach that centers upon the, the theological meaning, as to say, what God has to communicate to us about who he is and what his will is, the theological meaning of the text as we have it. So the book does not really focus upon a reconstruction of earlier sources, or uh, earlier stages of the gospel tradition, uh, nor does it attempt really to reconstruct uh, the life of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, but rather we focus upon the text as we have it. What message does the inspired author of Matthew's Gospel wish to communicate to his Christian readers uh, through what he has written here and the way that he has written it? Talked also speak also here about the circumstances of composition. You know, these are, are questions such as the, the date and place of writing of the gospel, uh, the authorship of the gospel. Uh, the, all, all of our gospels are actually, uh, are actually anonymous. Uh, none of them has, uh, you know, tells us the, the name of the author, no, and none of them does the author give us uh, his own identity. Uh, the titles were added later. Uh, perhaps as early as the beginning of the second century, but still uh, later than the Gospels were written. So we talk about matters of authorship there. And then I talk about the literary structure of the book, uh, the way in which the book is arranged, the, the, the major divisions within the book, and, and the dynamic uh, way in which the writer relates motifs and themes to one another in order to communicate meaning. So that's basically the background that the orientation section gives. From there, you focus on interpretation. And of course, that's ultimately what every reader of the Gospel of Matthew um, hopes to get right. Uh, Talk about how your book helps us to uh, properly understand and interpret what the Gospel of Matthew teaches. Uh, I understand the Gospel of Matthew in terms of its structure as falling into three main units. Uh, 1, 1 through 4.16 being the preparation for Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. 4.17 through 16.20 being the uh, proclamation of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God to Israel. And 16.21 through 28.20 being the passion and resurrection of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. Uh, the Matthew actually indicates that progression, the threefold movement, through two general headings that he gives. At the beginning of the second major division, 417 through 1620, we read in 417, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then at the beginning of the third major division, at 1621, says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You note the parallel there. From that time, Jesus began. So that Matthew gives us a, a really a 
clues in terms of the development of his book. And so the interpretation portion of, of this of my book uh, is really a passage-by-passage passage, uh, ex- exposition mm-hmm. of the gospel, uh, focusing upon, and, and we say something about every, every segment within the book, but uh, we focus upon, I focus upon um, those passages that are most critical to an understanding of the book and the message uh, of the book. And so uh, there are three chapters here. Uh, the interpretation of Matthew 1, 1 through 4, 16, and then uh, 4, 17 through 16, 20, and 16, 21 through 28, 20. In the third section, it follows naturally. Um, this is the, the section on reflection, and it develops some of the major theological issues that emerge in the previous section on interpretation. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. This, this is a culmination of the book. And again, uh, it reflects the conviction that, that, the, that the purpose of this book is really theological. That is to say... Uh, that Matthew is 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 engaged in preaching uh, to his audience. Uh, matter of fact, it's no accident that the that you know that 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 these books are called gospels and that their authors are referred to as evangelists. That's exactly what they are. So none of these gospels, of course, exists uh, fundamentally just to give us uh, historical information mm-hmm. about Jesus, uh, but really to to teach and to engage in pastoral care uh, toward uh, their audience. And uh, so, uh, uh, out of uh, so, all interpretation uh, should really lead to theology. That is to say, an understanding of God, of Christ, and of God's will and purpose for us. And that's what this third section really makes explicit. And so, we deal with, of course, uh, uh, what's called Christology. That is to say, uh, uh, how Jesus is presented and the meaning of Jesus according to Matthew's Gospel in two chapters, and then also. Uh, 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 what Matthew says is teaching about God, is teaching about uh, salvation history, that is to say, redemptive history, which is a major concern of Matthew's gospel, and eschatology, um, uh, both how uh, the Christ event brings to fulfillment uh, the Old Testament and then also future eschatology, that is to say, the consummation, and then it ends finally with the discipleship. Well, I would encourage our listeners, certainly for pastors and scholars, academics, this is a volume that will be um, very useful. But I I appreciate uh, the challenge of going deeper, and a volume like The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew, not only can help us better understand uh, the structure and meaning of Matthew, but may also help us as we approach other Gospels as well in trying to not only understand, but apply what's what's being taught there. Dr. Bauer, thank you so much for your work and for taking the time to join us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Again, the book is titled The Gospel of the Son of God, An Introduction to Matthew. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. You might just want to spend a year going deeper in studying the gospel and an introduction to help us better understand how to approach it. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. About eight minutes after five o'clock is the time. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producer, Clark Hilton engineer of today's program. Well, at the end of 2009, you know, it didn't occur to me at the start of the new year that we were actually entering into a new decade. It just, I didn't think about it, but it's a whole new decade. So you look back at the tens. Uh, as they refer to them. 
how um, how they became a decade of debt and what that might mean for the 20s. Well, at the end of 2009, the total federal debt was about $12.3 trillion, which is, of course, a staggering amount of money. Now it stands at an astonishing $23.1 trillion. Now that we're looking back on the 10s, that's roughly $180,500 of debt for every U.S. household. It's important for Americans to understand how we got here and what lawmakers can do to bring back fiscal sanity. Now, I mention this not because I'm hopeful, um, I'm, I'm optimistic, but just because I think it's important to know. And maybe a few people will demand that fiscal responsibility return in Washington. <laughs> I know it's kind of a joke. Nazareth, the comedian, is on Saturday. I'm not going to try to be funny again. Well, the federal government entered the 2010s with sky-high annual deficits. This had two primary causes. First, there was the Great Recession that reduced incomes and profits, which meant a sharp decrease in tax revenue. A slow economic recovery kept tax revenues relatively low for several years. Secondly, Lawmakers use the recession as an excuse to massively increase the amount of federal spending. Now, they can use just about any excuse, but at that time, that's the one they chose. The 2009 stimulus package in particular led to record-setting spending levels. President Obama, he largely sold this additional spending as a way to jumpstart the economy. But the structure of the stimulus package told another story. The politically motivated design of the package meant that it was ineffective at growing the economy. What it did do effectively was grow the national debt. Now, low tax revenue, high spending, combined to uh, general federal deficits of over $1 trillion per year starting in 2009. That's even before the tens. Between the big government stimulus and bank bailouts, millions of Americans were fed up with how both parties responded to the financial crisis. The Tea Party movement was born out of this uh, backlash. And in 2010, the election put dozens of believers in limited government in the House and the Senate. Great. Recovery is coming. Well, two events in 2011 showed both the promise and the limits of the Tea Party's political muscle. On the positive side, the practice of airmarking, spending for narrow political purposes, came to an end, at least on paper. The public's concern over deficits led to the Budget Control Act of 2011. It sounds impressive. It raised the debt limit in exchange for rules meant to reduce the deficits in future years. The law had serious flaws and Tea Party members roundly opposed it. And although the law did serve to restrain spending for a few years, its flaws ultimately proved fatal. First, the Budget Control Act created an ill-fated committee on deficit reduction, which failed to produce follow-up legislation to produce or rather reduce future deficits. Well, this failure resulted in spending reductions through the annual discretionary spending process known as sequestration. Remember that from the tens? Well, here's the Budget Control Act's primary flaw, It came to bear. It didn't create a single spending limit to cover anything or everything, but instead created separate defense and non-defense categories, both of which were cut. Well, this meant that sequestration didn't distinguish between the vital work of national defense and the secondary activities such as politically uh, driven business subsidies. Defense-focused members on uh, of Congress constantly chafed at the spending limits. This gave leverage to members who desired ever more domestic spending. And as a result, Congress passed a series of bills to increase spending limits for both categories. At first, these increases were somewhat modest and particularly paid for uh, to avoid growing the deficit. 
However, they established a precedent that would have devastating fiscal consequences moving forward. The 2018-2019 spending deals were massive and undid much of the Budget Control Act deficit reduction. Rather than doing the hard work of prioritizing what areas to spend taxpayer money on, the McConnell, Schumer and uh, Mnuchin Pelosi deals threw away any pretense of federal self-control. At least it was honest. We'll give it that. Well, at the same time, Congress also allowed mandatory programs such as Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid to balloon. Each of these programs is growing at an unsustainable rate. But, you know, we'll let another generation figure that out. And combined, they threatened to crowd out core priorities such as, oh, I don't know, national defense. Well, this brings us to a terrifying prospect. I mean, in the context of this world anyway, the deficit for 2020 is expected to exceed one trillion dollars once more. Worse, the deficit is projected to stay above one trillion dollars for the rest of the coming decade. You know, 2030 is coming 10 years from now. What makes this situation especially unconscionable is the strength of the economy. A time of low unemployment, no major wars is usually an occasion for lower deficits and even balanced budgets. Instead, Washington is abandoning its responsibilities, but it's not too late for that to change. Okay, maybe it is, but let's try to be optimistic. Well, the Blueprint for Balance was produced by the Heritage Foundation, and it provides a comprehensive guide for responsible policymakers to bring the federal debt under control. Well, it includes making pro-growth tax reform permanent, expanding on good tax policy, strengthening budget rules to impose fiscal discipline and legislative accountability, reforming Social Security and federal health care programs to target benefits toward the most vulnerable while reducing costs, and eliminating wasteful and inappropriate spending on federal agencies and programs that fail to deliver on national priorities. Now, the problem is there are too many partisan issues that uh, require the full and undivided attention of members of Congress, both House and the Senate. For these kinds of things to actually be done, but hope springs eternal. Okay, maybe temporary. Well, maybe just for a minute or two. Taking this path would preserve individual liberty. It would strengthen the economy, enable civil society to flourish. It would also restore fairness for younger and future generations who will loathe this generation once they figure out what's being done and been done. That would bear the burden of the $23.1 trillion and growing national debt they will inherit. Well, the 20 dens were a decade of debt. The 2020s, well, they could be a decade of balance, but I wouldn't hold your breath. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Mark Galley, who was the editor of Christianity Today. He stepped away. Now, you might think it's connected to his call for Trump's removal, but that retirement was announced sometime earlier, and there's a new editor in town. We'll tell you more about that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, several months ago, Christianity Today's past editor-in-chief, Mark Galley, announced his retirement, and uh, he did just that last Friday. Uh, he is succeeded by the new editor-in-chief, longtime pastor and writer Daniel Harrell, who most recently served as senior minister at um, Colonial Church in Edina, Minnesota. He lost his wife uh, unexpectedly last Easter, and the aftermath of, uh, of this death had been very difficult for him, but he's uh, now taken on this responsibility. Now, some had linked the uh, retirement of Mark Galley to the very controversial article in Christianity Today that sparked uh, a lot of um, backlash and 
really exposed a, a, a fissure within the evangelical community. But he was editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. He infuriated nearly 200 evangelical leaders. Now, I don't know how significant 200 is in view of the, the full number of them. But he wrote a December editorial calling for President Trump's removal from office and describing the president as being profoundly immoral and stepping down at the end of uh, the week. Now, he may have been emboldened knowing that his job is not on the line. He'd already announced and was preparing for his retirement, but he confirmed his departure in a Twitter message on New Year's Eve. Well, my retirement is a couple of days away, he wrote. We'll be uh, posting here more often now that I have more time on my hands. Well, given last week, maybe not. End quote. Well, on Wednesday night, the magazine's Twitter account also confirmed that he will be leaving and wrote that his future plans include continuing a weekly newsletter for those who are interested in continuing to follow him and his uh, views. Our editor in chief for two more days, the magazine posted following uh, followed by a crying emoji. If you're wanting to keep up with Mark after the, he retires, he'll still be sending out his weekly newsletter each Friday, Christianity added in a second message. His December 19th editorial titled Trump Should Be Removed from Office came one day after the House of Representatives approved two articles of impeachment against the president, making the nation's 45th president the third in history to be impeached behind Andrew Jackson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. Richard Nixon, you'll recall, uh, resigned in 1974, before the House could vote to impeach him, which they most assuredly would have. Well, the Galley editorial in a leading publication for the nation's evangelical Christian community, founded by Billy Graham, uh, the late Billy Graham in 1956, sparked an intense reaction, including from Graham's son, the Reverend Frank uh, Franklin Graham. My father knew Donald Trump, believed in Donald Trump, and in this last election, he voted for Donald Trump, the son of the late pastor and president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association uh, uh, told Fox News. And if he were here today, I'm sure he would tell you that himself. Now, it's always interesting to me when uh, we comment on uh, posthumously on what an individual might have thought given a set of circumstances that developed long after they passed. First of all, he wouldn't care because he's in glory. But uh, nonetheless, I'm always a little weary when we impose. I mean, it may be entirely true, but when we impose the views of an individual who is gone on a set of circumstances they had no knowledge of. But anyway, many liberals hailed Galley, saying his decision to oppose Trump showed courage. Nearly 200 evangelical leaders condemned what he had written, saying the anti-Trump editorial had offensively questioned the spiritual integrity and uh, Christian witness of tens of millions of believers who take seriously their civic and moral obligations, end quote. Well, uh, perhaps one of the weakest uh, elements of the article is suggesting that if you hold this particular view, uh, then you are outside the main uh, mainstream of evangelical uh, thought and conviction. Um, that might be a bridge too far to suggest that an individual does not merit your support might be a better approach. But anyway, in his editorial, Galley invoked the mission of Billy Graham to help evangelical Christians interpret the news in a matter that reflects their faith, which is always an appropriate call. Uh, to what degree is our allegiance to a particular political outcome as opposed to our Christian faith? I recalled some months ago that when Bill Clinton was in the impeachment process, uh, the hue and cry at that point was that character matters. So that seems to have faded under current circumstances. So we as believers, regardless of who's in the White House, what our party affiliation is, um, we need to be very careful about how we approach politics in view of the greater allegiance that we have as ambassadors 
of Christ. Uh, again, uh, uh, quoting here from Mr. Galley, as he wrote, we want Christianity today to be a place that welcomes Christians from across the political spectrum. And believe it or not, there are Christians all across the political spectrum and reminds everyone that politics is not the end and purpose of our being. That said, we do feel it necessary from time to time to make our opinions our own opinions on political matters clear always, as Graham encouraged us, doing so with both conviction and love. We love and pray for our president as we love and pray for leaders as well as ordinary citizens on both sides of the political aisle, he wrote. Well, Galley acknowledged that Democrats have had had it out for Trump from day one and that the president didn't have a serious opportunity to offer his side of the story during the impeachment process. However, he added the facts in this instance are unambiguous. Well, I think you might... Um, be able to make an argument there. But the president of the United States attempted to use his political power to coerce a foreign leader to harass and discredit one of the president's political opponents. Well, Galley, a native of California, had previously announced his departure plans in October. So the two things were not linked, the editorial and uh, his leaving. I've been uh, EIC for about seven years now, he wrote in Christianity Today at the time. And as it goes with many jobs, I think I finally understand what I should have been uh, doing all along. It has been quite a ride for the ministry economically and journalistically. Some define lows uh, to be sure, uh, some definite lows rather to be sure, and some wonderful highs aside from a strong sense of God's call. What's given me most joy is the people I have worked with, men and women who are passionate about their faith and dedicated to their work and have a sense of humor to boot. Well, Christianity Today CEO Dr. Timothy Dalrymple announced at the time that Galley's successor would be Dr. Daniel Harrell, a longtime minister and author, as mentioned a few moments ago. So the challenge continues for those of us who are followers of Christ, who hold very different views on events as they unfold in our culture and our country and across the world. Can we hold in common our common heritage in Christ, our common assignment as ambassadors of Christ, charged with uh, uh, preaching the gospel and making disciples manage to live and work together on opposite ends of the uh, political and other continuum? God help us to embrace John 17, that they would know that we are one by our love for one another. That, it seems to me, is one of the greatest challenges, not the only, but one of the greatest challenges for the body of Christ in the 21st century. And that, of course, will continue to be our challenge. Well, CNN has settled a multi-million dollar defamation lawsuit filed by Covington Catholic High School student Nick Sandman over its botched coverage of a a viral confrontation with a Native American elder that had portrayed the Kentucky teen as the aggressor. Well, it was first reported on Fox 19 that CNN settled with Sandman on Tuesday for an undisclosed amount. The $250 million defamation suit sought damages for the emotional distress Nicholas and his family suffered in the fallout of the network's reporting. And there was, uh, by all accounts, significant backlash for he and his family. His attorney, Todd McCurdy, declined to comment on the dollar amount or other elements of the settlement with CNN, which, of course, is probably the non-disclosure agreement that's part of it. Among them, ABC, CBS, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, NPR, Slate, The Hill and Gannett, uh, which owns the Cincinnati Inquirer, as well as miscellaneous other small outlets. Uh, According to McCurdy, 
Separate lawsuits against The Washington Post and NBC have already been filed, he added. Well, last March, Sandman's attorneys filed a suit against CNN for its coverage of the incident before all the facts had surfaced. The team was seeking a whopping $800 million in damages from CNN, NBC and The Post. Well, Sandman was uh, swept up in a controversy after a video clip depicted the MAGA hat wearing. And of course, that was an indiscretion that is intolerable in America today. Uh, The MAGA hat wearing student smiling at Nathan Phillips, beating a drum and singing a chant as he was surrounded by Sandman's peers who all had joined in on the chant in front of the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Several mainstream media outlets, including CNN, portrayed the incident with Sandman and the other teens as being racially charged before it was discovered by additional footage that a group of black Hebrew Israelites had provoked the confrontation by slinging racial slurs at the students as they were waiting for their bus following last year's March for Life event in Washington, D.C. Footage then showed Phillips, who was uh, in town for the Indigenous People's March, approaching the students amid the rising tensions between the two groups. He apparently initiating what became something of a confrontation. Well, neither CNN nor NBC commented. A Post spokesperson previously said, while we do not accept the characterizations and contentions regarding a reporting of the incident at Lincoln Memorial, we have taken steps to address the concerns expressed to us. The poll's story didn't emerge all at once. And throughout our coverage, we sought to produce accurate reports. Even the comments of the school and church officials changed and the Post provided ongoing coverage of the conflicting versions of this event and its aftermath, giving prominent attention to the student's account and the investigative findings supporting it. Well, sort of on a lame foot, they did all of that. We thus have provided a fair and accurate historical record of how this incident unfolded. Well, we'll see what happens. CNN has folded, if you will. We'll see what happens with the others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Oh, about 30 minutes after 5 o'clock. When we come back, we'll talk about the Methodists who have agreed on a compromise to split the denomination. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Cy Gart, The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. The book is published by Kregel. He'll be my guest on Thursday. Well, factions in the United Methodist Church have reached an initial settlement around its intractable division over LGBT marriage and the ordination of uh, uh, gays and lesbians, offering $25 million to a group of conservative congregations who want to break away and form a new denomination. Well, for both conservatives and progressives in the church, this compromise comes as an answer to prayer. It's being reported in Christianity Today uh, that various groups were slated to once again propose different plans for a split of the UMC's general conference in May. But under the new agreement, they're going to abandon the proposals and put their full support behind the protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation, which was announced on Friday. Now, I'm not sure how this represents reconciliation um, or grace through separation, but that's the title of the agreement that was announced on Friday. The eight-page statement details the terms of the split for the nation's largest mainline denomination. The undersigned propose restructuring the United Methodist Church by separation as the best means to resolve our differences, allowing each part of the church to remain true to its theological understanding while recognizing the dignity, equality, integrity, and respect of every person, end quote. While the protocol will still need to be approved by the United Methodist Church legislative body, 
but has unanimous support from a diverse 16-member mediation team, including representatives from UMC Next, Mainstream UMC, Uniting Methodists, the Confessing Movement, Good News, the Institute on Religion and Democracy, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, Affirmation, Methodist Federation for Social Action, Reconciling Ministries Network, and the United Methodist Queer Clergy Caucus, as well as bishops from the United States and across the world. Well, this uh, is very likely to bring to an end this dysfunction that we have suffered through the past 47 years. That's a quote from the president and publisher of Good News and Pastor of Adult Discipleship at the Woodlands UMC, which uh, is outside uh, Houston. We were never going to find a way to move forward together. Our ultimate goal of setting each other free to do ministry as we believe God would have us do has come to fruition, end quote. Well, the 12.5 million member UMC has been in a standoff over LGBT issues uh, for decades, culminating in a vote in favor of its traditional position against same-sex marriage and gay clergy during a special session last year. As a result, some left the UMC, some continued to defy the UMC position outright, and some challenged the legality of the vote in the denomination's court, ultimately putting the question of how to move forward before the delegation once again this year. Well, the result of months of negotiations, the new protocol creates a quick, clean break for a new traditionalist denomination that is yet to be created, but will receive a $25 million sum at its inception. Now, the assumption for everybody involved in this agreement, and I'm quoting now uh, from uh, Virginia, uh, Pastor Keith Boyette, uh, WCA president, who is Wesleyan Covenant Association, the assumption for everybody involved in this agreement was that the Wesleyan Covenant Association would launch the traditional denomination referenced in the protocol. Uh, The WCA includes 125,000 people and 1,500 churches who favor the UMC's traditional marriage stance. For years, they fear they have reached a point of irreconcilable differences with more progressive factions in the UMC and the WCA leadership have prepared for the launch of a new denomination. As part of the agreement, the Wesleyan Covenant Association will not make further claims for money beyond the $25 million. Now, in view of what the uh, church has, I don't know if that's a, a large sum or a small sum, that's not altogether clear. But in addition, the protocol sets aside $2 million for other new denominations that are created pursuant to its guidelines. Uh, Regional bodies of the UMC known as annual conferences would remain in the United Methodist Church unless they vote by 57 percent majority to join another denomination prior to July of 2021. Uh, In the meantime, the protocol would put a moratorium on charges against clergy and members who have violated the current prohibitions against or rather around homosexuality. Well, in previous efforts to formulate a plan to split ownership of property has been a sticking point. The new protocol provides provisions for churches that leave uh, to retain their assets and liabilities and for all clergy and lay employees to keep their positions. One pastor expressed the relief felt by many fellow Methodists, saying the United Methodist Church will have far greater possibilities for variability and vitality once this conflict is put behind us. It allows United Methodists to self-differentiate and choose a a future, rather, with hope that honors their theological convictions and their interpretation 
of Scripture. Well, as has been previously reported, U.S. Methodists tend to be more conservative than their clergy. They're twice as likely to identify as conservative traditional at 44 percent than liberal progressive at 20 percent and evenly split on the church's ban on same-sex ceremonies, according to a denominational poll. Methodist views have shifted, however. Pew Research Center found that they're still less likely to than mainline Protestants overall to say homosexuality should be accepted at 60% of Methodists versus 66% of mainline or support the legalization of same-sex marriage at 49% versus 57%. Well, LGBT advocates in the United Methodist Church have praised the plan, looking forward to finally overcoming the stalemates over the denomination's official stance on the subject. In 1972, the United Methodist Church stated that homosexuals, no less than heterosexuals, are persons of sacred worth, but the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Well, this is exciting to me, says uh, one individual who participated in the protocol deliberations as director of the Reconciling Ministries Network. The potential to have the anti-LGBTQ language removed in 2020 is amazing, at least in that branch of the church, the United Methodist Church. And the agreement to start a moratorium two days ago, uh, those are very positive things for the LGBTQ United Methodists. Now, the statement, in quote, uh, the statement on the protocol was sent to the Council of Bishops office on behalf of the mediation team who will provide further details about the plan during their live stream later this month. Uh, But once again, the decision has been made that the United Methodist Church will officially split Um, There will be a more conservative faction, a Wesleyan faction, and the United Methodist Church faction that will apparently be more liberal or progressive in its view. I have I've attempted to start this um, warning from Rabbi uh, Daniel Lappin at least two times previous, and now I don't have time to really get into it today, so I'm, I'm not going to, but... Rabbi Daniel Lappin um, uh, wrote an article. It's a rabbi's warning to U.S. Christians uh, toward tradition, and I, I'm going to make every effort to get through it uh, one of these days this week because it really, um, I think, is essential for us uh, to consider, and um, I think it's very informative as we face uh, the next decade, uh, some of the challenges that we in the church will face, not not necessarily from inside, although there as well, but from outside mainstream Christianity as well. So I'll try to get to that on another occasion. Also, I'll I'll mention in the few minutes that I have left before we go to break that I had the opportunity last night to see the movie uh, 1917. Uh, I was invited as a uh, representative of the talk show to have a preview. It opens in theaters on Friday, and it's a movie that I've wanted to see anyway. I don't usually find the time to go to the theater, but I had hoped that I'd find the time to go to see this one. Well, I had the opportunity to see it last night, and I'll be talking about it the next couple of days. Uh, But I have to say, aside from uh, occasional profanity, which was not gratuitous, but it is a war movie, and therefore it is present, uh, I would say it's relatively light, uh, given what is more common today. It's uh, It very uh, tells the story very well um, of a story related to the, it's either the producer or director, and I'll clarify all of that tomorrow, uh, that was uh, relayed to him by his grandfather. And uh, I'll talk more about that uh, tomorrow and on Friday for those of you who are thinking about seeing it. As I mentioned, it opens in theaters uh, on Friday. So 
wanted to let you know that that's uh, that's coming up again tomorrow on the program. We'll talk with Cy Gart. He's the author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And then on Friday, we'll have our first Friday Friend Show of 2020. So that's uh, the lineup for the rest of the week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Cy Gart, author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, we're going to focus our attention on the lighter side of the news. Of course, if there's breaking news or things escalate in the conflict between the United States and Iran, we'll certainly break in and provide that information. Otherwise, we'll take a um, much-needed look at some of the other stuff that's going on in the world. So that's coming up on Friday. Well, over the uh, last couple of weeks, as I enjoyed time with my family celebrating Christmas and New Year's, I spent very little time following the news. Now, of course, during that period, there tends to be less news. But one of the stories that captured my attention during that time was the shooting that took place on Sunday, December the 29th. Um, And it was at West Freeway Church of Christ. It's a close-knit congregation of about 280 people. They didn't get to finish their Sunday morning service uh, that Sunday morning, again, December 29th. Well, on the following Monday, roughly 30 hours after a gunman killed two beloved Christians during their uh, communion service, an uh, armed member of the congregation eventually fatally shot the would-be intruder, Um, A standing room only crowd squeezed into the church fellowship hall next door to the closed auditorium where the shooting occurred to grieve, to pray, to sing Amazing Grace, to sing Precious Memories, and it is well with my soul. What happened yesterday, said um, Britt Farmer, who is uh, one of the ministers of the, uh, the church, what happened yesterday is not something that we will ever be able to explain. He shared hugs and tears before the special gathering as uh, canine officers made sure the building was secure for them to be there. There is evil in this world, and evil took two of my dear friends yesterday. He went on to add, not a bullet from a gun, evil, not ideology, evil. The preacher occasionally overcame, uh, over was overcome, I should say, with emotion that made it difficult for him to speak. He declared that he would not let evil win. The battle belongs to God, he said, to amens and applause. Farmer, who again administers to the congregation but is not the pastor, praised his family, all four of his adult children traveled home after the shooting, and his spiritual family for the support that they had shown to him and others. You are incredible, he said, and I love you, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. One of the church's five elders wrapped an arm around him and led the church in prayer. With all of our hearts we ache, and with all of our hearts we love, he said, What we feel is loss, we know, is your gain, as he prayed. Guide us in how we handle the losses, that your way will be our way. Well, the elder added, Father, we even grieve the soul of the one who wronged us, referring to the shooter. Well, the gunman, who was later identified by authorities as Keith Thomas Kenyonen, 43, slipped into the Sunday service wearing a long black wig, a fake beard, and a bulky jacket, according to witnesses. During the Lord's Supper... He pulled out a modified 12-gauge shotgun with a pistol grip. Um, The uh, elder said that the gunman's motives remain unknown, but after seeing a photo of uh, the young man without the disguise and uh, of his appearance, the minister actually recognized him. We've helped him on several occasions with food. He gets mad when we won't give him cash. He's been here on multiple occasions. So he had come to the church on previous occasions and received help. 
Well, Kinunan, the shooter, first two uh, shots killed a deacon. Uh, Anton Tony Wallace, who held a silver tray as he was serving communion, and a church security team member, Richard White, 67, who yelled, drop it, as the gunman reached for his own pistol. Wallace, a father of two and a grandfather of four, was the church's deacon over community outreach and visitation. He preached periodically at a predominantly black church of Christ in Mineral Wells, about 45 miles west of White Settlement. He volunteered every Sunday, every summer, I should say, at a Christian youth camp. He just loved kids, said the surviving elder. Tony was a joy to be around. He loved to sing. Uh, White was Farmer's best friend. The two enjoyed spending time together. Well, both victims were at the back of the auditorium when the shooter had taken a seat, gone to the restroom during the meet and greet time at the service's start, and quickly drawn the attention of the church's security team. When he came in, he was under observation. This was a case of maybe it's nothing, but maybe it's worth looking into, said another church elder, John Robertson, who mans the church's video room. We had put him on isolation on one of the cameras back here so that we could see what he was, uh, how he was behaving at the moment. So when he got up between the bread and the cup, again, communion was being served, or right after the prayer, we said we need to make an intervention. But before that could occur, he brandished his weapon and opened fire. As he turned toward the front of the auditorium, he fired a third shot. It ended up in the wall to the right of the pulpit stage where the congregation's children normally bring their change, part of a Coins for Christ ministry after communion. Just as he fired his third shot, church secretary team leader Jack Wilson pulled his own trigger. Wilson's single shot struck Kinunan, who immediately fell to the ground. A bullet hole was visible Monday on the side of the wall by the pews where the gunman stood, and the smell of gunfire remained strong. The events at West Freeway Church of Christ put me in a position that I would Hope no one would ever be in, Wilson wrote on Facebook, but evil exists and I had to take out an active shooter in church. Other church security team members with handguns approached Kanunin as the second uh, six seconds of uh, gunfire ended. The loud blasts replaced with screams and crying from the shocked congregation. Police arrived within two minutes. However, Farmer said it felt like an eternity. The citizens who were inside the church undoubtedly saved 242 other parishioners, said a regional director of the Texas Department of Public Safety on Sunday last week. The true heroes are the people who are sitting in those pews today, the immediate responders who saved their fellow citizens. I just can't overstate how critical that that is for everyone to recognize it is truly heroic. It is, however, troubling. The West Freeway Church beefed up its security team after the November 5, 2017 massacre of the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, in which a gunman there killed more than two dozen people, one of whom was pregnant. The gunman later killed himself. Typically, anywhere from 25 to 30 West Freeway members carry concealed handguns on any given Sunday. However, he said that number would have been um, a lot less that Sunday because a number of people were away for the holidays. The church's volunteer worship coordinator spent 30 years as a Maryland state trooper and an FBI agent in Louisiana, Nebraska, and California. A member of the church security team, he said he had leaned down to take a communion cracker when he heard the first shot. And I saw the flash in my peripheral vision and immediately knew it was him. He said the strangely attired visitor whom he'd noticed sitting not far from him And I did as my training taught me, go to cover first and then bring your weapon up. By the time I did that, our head of security had already taken the one shot that killed the guy. End quote. Again, we're talking about in the midst of a church service, which is disturbing. And I'm not suggesting they did the wrong thing. It's just 
challenging to consider that this is uh, where we find ourselves today in our violent culture. Well, the song leader at Monday night service said he wasn't surprised the gunman was able to get off shots. The only way you could have prevented this was to search him, but the church doesn't want to search people, he said. It wants to welcome them into God's family. The question, where is the line between loving people and protecting the flock? I think our process here normally works. We don't want to eliminate people from coming just because they're homeless or look like they're homeless or dangerous. It's a very loving church, as the church should be. But that's the latest description of a church that faced a gunman intent on well, killing people in the process of a worship service and at this point in the process of the church members taking communion. It raises some troubling questions and certainly uh, I'm certain in uh, board meetings and elders meetings all across the country, these kinds of conversations are being held. How do we uh, deal with, how do we prepare for the possibility of this kind of an event? We need to be praying for our own congregations and for the church as a whole as uh, these events seem to be increasing in number, although they are still very few and far between. Once again, tomorrow, we're going to talk with Cy Gart, author of The Works of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. So join us if you can. James Blinn, producer of today's program, Clark Hilton, engineer of today's program. Thank you to both gentlemen. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.